welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Stay with us any Sunday. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41 is where we are this morning. Let's remind ourselves, I reminded you in the prayer time, but let's remind ourselves again where we are. We're in Ephesus. Paul is on his third missionary journey, and he's in Ephesus, uh, where he'll become deeply loved by that church there. He'll spend some two-plus years um, in Ephesus. And uh, maybe you picked up uh, on this in the reading, but uh, I want to remind you that the Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. And this was the pride and joy of Ephesus. The Temple of Artemis was considered, in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders. That's how wonderful and spectacular the temple of Artemis was. It was a place of cult worship. Ar- Artemis was the, the mythical daughter of Zeus and was associated with health, help, and fertility. Some even speculate, I think probably rightly, that, that her name meant safe and sound. And so, so the folks in, in Ephesus think, thought they were, they were safe and sound if they were to worship Artemis. Even in this place, there was a bank where people from all over the world came to, disp- to deposit money. It became a safe place, even of asylum for criminals. I shared this quote with you last week, but I'm going to sh- share it again from a man named Tony Reinke. He says that Ephesus became a cultural center, a Louvre of art, a Sweden of asylum, a Mecca of religious pilgrimage, a DC of politics, a Wall Street of finance, and a Diagon Alley. I had to look up what that was, by the way but a Diagon Alley of magic and all of this in one metropolis. So you can imagine what a wonderful city Ephesus was. It was a full city, a city full of community pride, of local pride, of religious pride. Do you notice a city like that? The city is proud of who they are. Their identity is strong, and from that identity comes their industry, as we will see with Demetrius, or his whole industry was built around this temple in Artemis, this temple of Artemis building these little idols, these little trinkets out of silver that went along with the worship of the city of Ephesus. So they had an identity. They had an industry. Things were good for Artemis and uh, for, for, for Ephesus. And, and everything in that city was, was marked by who they thought Artemis was and how they worshiped God. And all of their pride in their city came from that identity so that their, their worldview, even their industry, everything they knew was, was seen through the lens of this temple in Artemis. Just this uh, past Friday, I was out in my backyard uh, with my son Silas, who was four years old, and we were swinging on the back swing. And as we went out to swing on the swing, there was a little black spot uh, on the swing. And he said, Dad, can you clean that off for me? So I went to wipe it off. I said, don't worry about that spot. Is it an old mildew stain or something? I said, that's just a stain. And I said, and so he said, okay. So he gets on the swing and he swings. I said, Silas, do you know what a stain is? So here's his definition of a stain. A stain is what happens when you get snowball on your shirt. Everything he sees and knows, even his definitions of what a stain is, is marked by his culture, marked by his identity, marked by the worldview he has for growing up in a city with great civic pride, with great, with, with great community pride, with great local pride. So it was for the people of Ephesus. So much so that it, their, their, their beliefs, not only their culture, but their very beliefs were all tied up in the worship of this false god. And not only that, 
but their beliefs became profitable to them. They had money in their pockets. They had money in the bank. They had great wealth because of all of this industry that this local community had produced for them, even that all of Asia was coming to them. They had a lot going for them. And I don't know about you, but if I lived in a city like that and I had my pockets lined with all this money, I wouldn't want anybody to touch that. I wouldn't want anybody coming in uh, to New Orleans and saying that, that you can no longer eat snowballs, right? Because that would undo all of this industry that we have around us, and it would undo some of those things. I don't think it's sinful to eat snowballs, by the way, so I don't think we have to worry about that. But what they were doing was indeed needing to be un, undone. And so what happened in Ephesus was the gospel came to town. And when the gospel comes to town, things start changing. Things become different. Their identity starts to change. Their industry starts to change. Things that they, they love and things that get them going, things that line their pot. All of a sudden, all of this is becoming undone. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that the word of the Lord is increasing and prevailing mightily. And so the first thing I want you to know this morning as we see the word spreading we see the gospel is prevailing. This is point number one. The gospel is prevailing. I want you to see the power of the gospel. The gospel is prevailing and, and, and revival is coming to town. The gospel comes to town and we, we saw this, even some of this last week, that this wonderful couple, Priscilla and Aquila, began teaching and discipling and, and Apollos gets this firmer understanding of Christianity and these seven sons of Sceva, these uh, Jewish itinerant exorcists, their, their, their livelihood is even undone. So much so that when we get to Acts chapter 19 verses 17 and following, we see this, that, that people who were once making their living off the magic arts, do you remember this last week? They start confessing their sins, divulging their practices, and they began to burn, the Bible tells us, books that came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. Today's currency, that will be worth millions of dollars. So the gospel had changed their hearts so much that they burned millions of dollars of books that were once making a living for them. The gospel comes to town. The gospel is prevailing mightily. Hearts are changed. Culture is changing. And it's coming for Demetrius next. The gospel is prevailing. The Ephesians were experiencing this revival. Some things that we see when the gospel prevails. Let me, let me point a few things out to you. When the gospel prevails, let me, let me give you three things under point number one that, that you might notice when the gospel prevails. Maybe you can think of more, but here's a few at least. When the gospel is advancing and the gospel is prevailing, we'll see a sensitivity to sin. Do you notice that in your own life when, when you begin to love and, 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 and honor the gospel and more and more in your life, you start to become more sensitive to sin in your life. Your conscience is tenderized, callous hearts are broken, and things that you once tolerated become intolerable. Complacency is shattered, so it is in Ephesus. The gospel comes to town, the gospel is prevailing, and these Magic artists are becoming very sensitive to sin in their life, so much so that they divulge their practices, they confess their sins, and they begin to extol, extol the name of Jesus. We notice the presence of the Lord. We see that the fear of the Lord came over all of the city. So not only when we see the gospel come to town, we see a sensitivity to sin, but we see a, 
an awareness of the presence of the Lord. In the Welsh Revival, one pastor said, if, if one were to ask to describe in a word the outstanding feature of the days of the Welsh Revival, one would unhesitantly reply that it was a universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. When the gospel comes to town and the gospel is prevailing, we're sensitive to sin, we're more aware of the presence of God among us, that, that God is doing a work in our midst. Maybe you've noticed that in your homes, in your churches, or whatever that might be. And something else we notice when the gospel comes to town, change happens quickly. You know, sometimes when the gospel is, is moving forward, it takes, like William Carey, seven years in India for him to see his first convert. But sometimes when the gospel comes to town, things happen pretty quickly. These happen pretty quickly for these folks in Ephesus. They begin to confess their sins. Change comes quickly. Jonathan Edwards, writing about the first great awakening in New England, said this. He said, God has also seemed to have gone out of his unusual way in the quickness of his work. And so the gospel is prevailing. The gospel has come to town. The people are becoming sensitive to sin. They're becoming aware of the presence of the Lord among them. The Bible says that they're fearing the Lord. They're extolling his name. Things are happening quickly. Millions of dollars of books are burned just in an instant there. They're making these decisions for Christ. And as the gospel prevails, tension begins to build, as you can imagine. This city, this Ephesus that had so much pride in who they are that all of Asia was coming to see the magic. They were coming to, to know the asylum. They were coming to know the money. They were coming to know the art. They were coming to know everything that Ephesus had, been come, had come to be known for. And much in our own hearts, when the gospel comes to town, the gospel comes and prevails in our own life, we start to realize that our hearts are changing. And as our hearts are changing, that means our actions might need to follow that and, and to change as well. And that, that our very identity is being challenged. If we find our identity with sin or whatever else, all of that is being turned upside down in our lives. Have you been there before? Do you remember that time when the gospel changed your heart and all of a sudden, everything you once were is all of a sudden undone? All because of the gospel. The gospel was prevailing in Ephesus, that's point number one. The gospel is prevailing. The gospel is moving forward. Point number two that we see in Ephesus as we more get into the specifics of our text itself, we see the power of the gospel, the gospel is prevailing. But we also, point number two, we see the power of idols. We see the power of idols. What's happening in Ephesus are their idols are being attacked. You heard this as I read a minute ago that Verse 23, you can go ahead and maybe look back there, 19, 20, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way, the church. For a man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He made silver shrines, these, these actual physical idols, and brought him no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, it brought them bank. It brought them money. And they were making a killing off these little silver idols, selling them to people all around the world. And something happened. In Ephesus, the gospel had come to town. And he says, he gets his craftsmen together and says, we have, look at verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And Paul has come, and in all of Asia, verse 26, he has persuaded and turned away a many great people. 
saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He has not specifically, that we've seen here, attacked Artemis, but as the gospel comes to town, people are sensitive to that, and so they stop worshiping these idols. They stop worshiping Artemis, so they stop buying the little trinkets of silver that he's making, and his business is coming undone. Idols are powerful. We'll give our lives away for idols. Tim Keller defines an idol. He said, well, I don't know about physical idols and I've never used my business to make things that people worship or whatever else. I think Tim Keller is extraordinarily helpful for this. He wrote a great little book called Counterfeit Gods, one of his best. He says this about an idol. What is an idol? Listen to this good. Here's the power of idols. An idol is anything more important to you than God. It's starting to get personal, right? We're not Demetrius. We're not making idols. You know, a theologian named John Calvin said the heart is idol factories. We're in our hearts. We're constantly making these idols to worship. Anything that's more important to you than God. Anything, so it's not just Demetrius that makes idols. We do. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything, anything you seek to get, you seek to give you what only God can give you. He goes on to say a counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Is there something, is is there a powerful idol in your life even this morning? So much so that if it would be taken away from you, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what it was for Demetrius. This was more than just the physical idol, right? If this is taken away from me, nobody told him he could stop making silver stuff, right? His craft was not taken away from him. That was not undone. What was taken away from him was the worship of this false god and the worship of this wealth that he had accumulated, That's the very first thing he tells the folks in Ephesus. He gets the fellow craftsmen together and says, he doesn't even talk about religion. The first thing he talks about is, our wealth is being impacted by this and we have to stop this. He had an idol. And the whole identity of of Ephesus, of this wonderful cultural city, was was being undone. Maybe they're starting to think, is there any, where's our identity in Ephesus? We're losing it. If Artemis is gone, we lose everything. We lose asylum, we lose art, we lose it all. Is it worth following this powerful gospel? Is it worth joining the way? So you can see that perhaps Artemis, whose name means safe and sound, if this idol is taken away, I can no longer be safe and sound. My security is gone if Artemis is gone, if my trade is gone. Idols are powerful in our lives, so much so that Demetrius is willing to get all these folks together and to run these Christians out of town, to run the way out of town. Idols are powerful in our lives. Idols of wealth and comfort and relationships and uh, maybe even sexual freedom, our, our idols are powerful in our lives. And sometimes our idols can profit us. They can make us accepted by the world. They can make us money, but God says you cannot serve God and mammon. Countercultural living, living as lights in a dark world, will bring tension, bring us into tension with our culture when we lay down these idols. 
And so idols are powerful because often they give us identity. Often they, they, they give us wealth. Often they give us acceptance. Everything that we are looking for or think will give us everything that we are looking for. But the gospel is changing everything. God, idols are powerful. They will blind us. And by the way, idols will kill us. The Bible tells us is that we worship idols. Idols are dead things. They're not like the living God. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have mouths but do not speak, the psalmist tells us. And anyone who worships them becomes like them, dead. But the one who worships the living God becomes alive. Idols are powerful. And idols, when they are attacked, they bring something up in us that either we confess them to be idols or we attack back in order to save our idols. So the proper response for the Ephesians should be, thank God he's exposed our idols. The proper response for me and for you is, thank God he's exposed that idol in my life. I will lay it down. But so we have the power of the gospel. We have the power of idols. Point number three this morning, notice the power of the mob. Notice the power of the mob. Notice the power in numbers. Notice the power in persuasion. Notice the power of people around you. Notice the power of people with the microphone in culture who are able to tell you what you should be doing and what you should be worshiping and what you should be like and what you should be celebrating. Notice the power of the mob. This is what Demetrius understands, and and he uses this in order to protect his idol, doesn't he? Demetrius starts with the business side of things. He doesn't start with worship. He doesn't start there. He doesn't start with what the people of God believe, what the way believes. That has nothing to do with it. What he starts with is money. He starts with the business side of things, the practical side of things. So he gets the mob worked up. He says, these guys, they're taking away our trade, which was not true. They were not taking away their trade, just what they were using their trade for. But he knew if he could work up this mob and to go after their livelihood, we see that in 1925. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Verse 27, he goes on to say, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into distribute, but also the temple of the great god Artemis. So he gets them worked up over their idol and then brings them, then we can't take down Artemis. And so then he makes it. Religious, then he brings their identity. Everything that our city is built for is going to be undone. And so he's working them up, working them up so much so. Did you notice it when I read it earlier in verse 32? That they're crying out for hours and there was a, for this, the assembly was in confusion. Look at verse 32. You might want to underline this. And most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> there is great power in a mob. <laughs> There is great power in numbers, either for good or for evil. And they don't know even why they are there. (laughs) And listen. Don't let the world get you drunk on power. Or let the world champion your idols. So much so that you start to believe that your idols are worth worshiping. These people did not even know while they were there. Have you ever seen a culture in confusion? Not even knowing why they were there or what truth was, but they will champion all sorts of things. And we'll start to believe it. 
Because they'll tell us that we can have identity. They can tell us that we have wealthy. They can tell us that we won't be cut out from this or that or the other. We will have a place. They don't even know why they're there. But they have civic pride. They have religious pride. And so they keep proclaiming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There's great power in the mob. Don't follow the mob. And then the crowd is calmed. Finally, a leader steps in in verse 35, and he, the town clerk comes. He quiets the crowd, and he says this, men of Ephesus, this verse 35, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is, uh, the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So, so the city clerk chimes in, and, and he starts pandering to the crowd. Uh, the, the, they think this temple was built because some meteor fell from the sky and they, they took that to be from Artemis. And so what he is trying, I think, to get across here to the city is, yeah, they're telling you that you worship a God not made by human hands. And so he's trying to show them that, remember when this meteor fell down and uh, this meteorite fell down? And so this comes from heaven. We don't worship a man-made God. So he's trying to you know, jump through hoops here to, to confirm this worship of this idol for them. Understand this. That yes, you can still keep worshiping this idol. They're not coming to do this. And, and so what this city clerk is trying to do, he's trying to calm the crowd. Why? Not because he believes in the way. He's trying to calm the crowd because if they incite a riot, they could lose favor with Rome. And if that happens, that will cause all sorts of disturbance in the city. And they don't want to lose that. And so this town clerk is not trying to save Paul or to save the way or to save these folks. He is trying to save his own backside so that nothing pops up in this city and that he is able to stay in good graces with Rome to the powers who be. What he is doing is bowing down to fear. So that's the next point, point number four. So we see the power of the gospel. We see the power of idols. We see the power of the mob. But we also see, number four, the power of of fear. Not only will the world make you drunk on, on the power of the mob, but, but the world will make you drunk on the spirit of fear. Asking questions like this, can I be safe and sound without Artemis, without that idol, without using my trade to make these idols in order to sell them and to make a lot of money? That's what he was after. It's not wrong for your trade to make a lot of money. That's not my point. My point is, what are your idols? And so there's this fear. Can I be safe and sound without my idol? Without my security blankets? Without whatever that idol is? If I give this up, if I lay this down, will Jesus be enough? And so the world will make us drunk off the spirit of fear. They, they fear their industry and their city being undone. This city official, he fears Rome, and so they buy into this fear. Yes, we don't want to mess up what, 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 how Rome looks at us. So now we're not only fearing our loss of our idol, now we're fearing the power of Rome. And so they're never putting their fear in the right place. They're just swapping one fear for the other. Fear of losing their idols, fear of upsetting the, the authorities. Don't underestimate the power of fear. That's what an idol will bring in your life. If I lose this, can I be safe and sound? If I give this up, if I lay this down, will Jesus be enough? There is great power in fear. We read in verse 17, go back up. 
that as the gospel becomes known through Ephesus, this all started with a good fear. A fear fell upon them, verse 17. And the name of the Lord was extolled. And many came and they were confessing and divulging their practices. They were laying down their idols because of a properly placed fear. Not pandering to the crowds, not fearing the loss of an idol or, or upsetting the authorities or the power of the mob or the power. They were laying it all down because they knew that Jesus was enough. The fear of God is free. Jesus says, fear not, I am with you. In reverent fear, we run to him and find the perfect love which casts out fear. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation that we don't have to fear anything anymore in this world because we have placed our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, the one and true and living God. Isaiah chapter 8 says this, let him be your fear, your reverence, your awe. Your, your, that's the one you're bowing down to. Let him be your dread. Listen to this. And he will become a sanctuary for you. The Lord is a, is a tower. We run into him. And we are safe and secure from all alarms. So God doesn't want us to cower like slaves in fear, in the house, but we are children in his household, that we know the sweet peace of the Father's care. And to think of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Jesus died for us to provide a place that we can enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear and trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear. He has made a way for us to the Father by taking all of our sin on the cross, the very thing that kept us from fellowship with him. He has laid aside, it's been nailed to the cross of Christ. And he says, fear not, those who come to me are covered with the blood of Christ. Fear not, but come to me and find sanctuary. So, the power of the gospel we see prevailing. As the power of the gospel prevails, we also see that these other powers are playing in, the power of idols, the power of the mob, the, the power of fear. But we also see, last and final point, is the same as the first. The power of the gospel prevails. The power of the gospel prevails. The gospel has power to save you. You're saved. You're safe. The power of the gospel is to secure you. You're secure in him. And the gospel has power to restore you. Paul would go on to say in his letter to the Ephesians, you know, they're trying to build these great temples to Artemis. And he beautifully says, you, church, are being built into a temple, a dwelling place of God. You are a true and better temple, more glorious than the ancient wonder of the world. He's building us up into that. That's what he's doing with you, one stone at a time. You are part of that temple, safe and secure in him. The power of the gospel, not only to save you and to secure you, but to 
restore you. It was this Ephesians. Maybe this is where you are this morning. Remember in Revelation, we hear from the church in Ephesus again. And do you remember what the Lord says to them? He says, you once were doing all these things, but you have lost your first love. They had fallen away from their first love at some point. This church that was greatly loved by Paul and God had done wonderful things in. But there's hope there. Because the power of the gospel is, is not only to save you and to secure you, but the power of the gospel to restore those who have beginning to drift away from their first love. The Lord says, repent. Turn once again to your first love. Don't fear. Yeah, a holy fear of reverence and awe, but don't cower down in fear and be scared. Turn back to Him. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that if we turn to Him, those who confess their sins and repent, the, the Bible says we will be refreshed. Refreshing times will come from the presence of the Lord. So know the power of the gospel, the gospel that is greater than any idols you might have set up, better than any wealth, any comfort, any relationships, any freedom. Jesus is better than all of this. And in God, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If all we have is Jesus, then we have everything. When the gospel comes to town, it turns our idols upside down. These powerful idols. We start getting our marching orders not from the mob, but from our king. Even though the mob is powerful, we, we, we know the power of fear. We, we no longer bow down to the fear of this world, but we bow down to the Lord and we feel him pick up our heads and say, Child, I love you. I'm your father. And we feel the embrace of a loving father. God is good to us. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. The gospel is powerful. The gospel will leave you safe and secure. And if you need restoration this morning, the gospel is still at work in your life to restore you. Let's pray.